Amen. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, our scripture passage this morning comes from Mark chapter 14. We are making our way through the Gospel of Mark. We've been doing so for most of the school year. And uh, we're timing it so that we're really following Jesus through the last week of his life now towards the cross and his resurrection as we head towards Good Friday and Easter ourselves. And so uh, just a few days before his death, we come upon a scene here that is actually recorded in all four of the Gospels. And that's very unusual. So whenever there's a passage that is recorded in all four Gospels and you're preaching through it, you should definitely take some time to spend on that because... If it's so important it made it through the editorial process into all four of them, then there must be something really good uh, that we're supposed to learn. And indeed, I think that is true of this, of this well-known passage of Jesus as being anointed in Bethany. And so if you would follow along with me, it's there for you in your worship folder. You can grab a Bible in front of you if you brought yours from home. Or if you're at home, it, it's on your screen and on the screen behind me. So lots of places you can get your eyes on the text. So make sure you do so as we read together. Let's begin in verse 1. Mark writes, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask, poured it over his head, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can go and do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Quite an anticlimax, isn't it? This is the word of God, the word of the Lord. May we believe all it teaches, obey all it commands, trust all that it promises, and revere all that it reveals. Would you say, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Okay, there's one word that I want you to have in the back of your mind as we go throughout this text this morning, and it's the word extravagance. Extravagance. We're planning a wedding. Uh, It's our first Uh, It's less than a month away now, and one lesson I've learned uh, is that a wedding is the kind of thing where you don't mind being extravagant. In fact, it's really the only way to do a wedding, to spend more money than you otherwise would. Now, hopefully not more money than you have. That's a goal for sure. You should plan for it and do all of that, but, but definitely more money than you otherwise would. It's actually a value when it comes to something like a wedding to do that. And I personally, you can pray for me, I've been trying hard to avoid my Steve Martin hot dog bun bun moment, you know, in Father of the Bride, where you remember that, where he loses his mind because hot dogs come in packages of sixes and the buns come in packages of eight, and he is just, he loses it. No, so there's, it's not really that at all. We've been having a great time. It's my son and not my, uh, one of my daughters, so there's not quite as much. But when it comes to wedding plans, 
being frugal might be a necessity. It might be a necessity. It might be necessary, and that's okay, and they're beautiful weddings. But being frugal should not necessarily be a value. The excess of joy and the specialness of the occasion and all of those things demands an excess of beauty and celebration and so forth. So extravagance in that time is actually, is actually value. Now here's my question. Where in your life is extravagance a value? What are the things that you are willing and you don't think twice about it and you don't worry about the implications that it has for your personal budget or so forth? What are you willing to splurge on? What are you planning right now to splurge on? Is it a dinner? Is it a wedding? Is it a vacation? Is it an anniversary? We all have, we all have things. And so we understand the principle of excess. There are things in all of our lives that we are all willing and even eager to be excessive about. But when it comes to our spiritual lives, we tend to be minimalists. We are very suspicious culturally about religious excess. Most see it as a threat, not a value. And I wonder if that's not rubbed off on all of us a little bit as we practice our faith. So the test, the test in this text, it's an argument for having a value of extravagance when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, to having a value of extravagance in your worship and love for God, as this woman so clearly illustrates here. And so just two things from the text this morning, uh, that, because it's just very clear and straightforward for us. I want you to see that she makes an extravagant gift. She gives an extravagant gift. And the reason she gives an extravagant gift is because of God's extravagant grace. Or you could say it this way, there is a worthy devotion that she's an illustration of. There is a worthy devotion that should be ours as well because of the worth of Christ. There's a worthy devotion that comes to this woman because she very uh, insightfully sees the worth of Jesus. And that's what I want us to see as well. So pray that that would be the case as we walk through this text. So first, I want you to see, let's talk about the extravagant gift that this woman offers. Now, there are three ways that Mark highlights the extravagance of what this woman does. First, let's look at it. First, he says that the oil was pure nard. Very costly, he says. Do you see that? That little detail there? It's suggested later in verse 5 that it would have been worth 300 denarii. So that is, a denarii is a day's wages, typically a day's wages, so 300, so a year's wages, or maybe a year and a half's wages, something like that. So probably this is a family heirloom, something that had been passed down from generation to generation. It was, it was, it was probably the sum total of this family's worth, their, their net worth, their, their, their treasure, you know, their retirement package, whatever it might be. This, is, this was their wealth. So there's, and not only that, but probably immense sentimental value attached to it. Now, secondly, it says that she broke the flask to get at the oil. Now, this detail is unique to Mark. Commentators say, okay, what, what is Mark trying to get at? And it probably is something like she offered the oil, but not only the oil, the vase too, which would have been a treasure. It would have been in some sort of ceramic, you know, very costly, very expensive, you know, like a, like a, um, a vase of some kind. It's the kind of thing where you don't say vase, you say vase. You know, that, that sort of thing. And uh, so there was something impulsive and dramatic about what she does here. Uh, it's an act of love and devotion. She kept nothing back. She just, she broke the flask in the process of, of getting the oil out, saying, you know what, this, when, th- we're going to give it all. 
We're going to give the everything here. And then, and then lastly, it says there, verse 3, that she didn't just anoint Jesus' feet, as we've seen in other places, and even in other accounts of this particular scene, it says that she anointed Jesus' head. She poured the oil over his head. She emptied the flask on top of Jesus' head. And so you can imagine the oil dripping down off his head and covering his whole body. He was drenched. Everything about this is above and beyond. The woman's actions are a model of proper devotion to Jesus. And notice that she is highlighted here in contrast to the chief priests and the scribes, verse 2, who are looking to arrest him and kill him, and also to the scoffers who criticize her extravagance with their fake piety and concern for the poor. The anonymous they, in verse 4, were indignant, it says. They were offended by what she has done. It's a specific word that refers to the way a bull would stomp the ground just before he charges. And then it says, verse 5, that they scolded her. That, that, that word means that they snorted at her. The language Mark is using here is he's saying they were acting like animals. They had lost their, their senses. She was the one that was a real, you know, a real human being in the midst of this thing. And Jesus quickly corrected them. He said, leave her alone. Look what he says. He says, what she's done is beautiful. Her heart was so full of love and gratitude. She had to do something they saw this as wasteful. Jesus saw it as beautiful. Not the right thing to do, a beautiful thing to do. They thought that there were more worthy uses for the oil or the money that it would fetch. Jesus commended her for recognizing his unique worth. I mean, she goes above and beyond for sure, but it was a worthy devotion because only he is worthy of this kind of excess. But here's a question we should ask. And I, Jesus says it's beautiful. Well, what makes it beautiful? What makes this particular act on the part of this woman beautiful? And I think it is beautiful because it's coming from such a profound heart of love. I heard a preacher uh, in a sermon re uh, this week preaching about this text. And he, he talked about when his children were very young, his wife, this is it's funny. I mean, this was back in the, I mean, you know, this is, it's kind of, a, kind of a dated funny thing. But his wife had somehow gotten this, this box that was bejeweled and this really beautiful box that I think she was keeping like her recipes, like the family heirloom recipes in or something like that. And, uh, and it, was, it was her treasured possession and she loved it more than anything else in the whole world. And, um, and one day, uh, it was her birthday, and one day uh, her, her little six-year-old boy came to her and, and, uh, and he, he, you know, behind his back had something. And, uh, and he said, Mommy, I have a present for you. And, and she was like, well, what is it? And he pulled it out, and it was her beautiful, well, it was her what, what once was her beautiful little box with all of her things in it. But he had taken it, and he had thrown away all the recipes, the family recipes, and the garbage had come that day. And so they were gone in the garbage truck. And he had taken it in the bathtub and scrubbed all of the pretty things off the outside of it and covered it in tinfoil. And he put his treasures in it, like a purple dinosaur and some scotch tape or something like that, and giving it to his mother. Now, you can imagine, right? But as the preacher went on, he said, years later, they had a fire in their house. And there were two things. He said, well, besides the kids, we made sure to get the kids out of the house, you know. But otherwise, there were two things they rushed back in to get. One was the family photo album, and the other was the gift from the boy. Why? Because it became so treasured. Because it, became, because it came from such a pure heart of devotion and love for his mother, even though he messed the whole thing up. It didn't matter. 
And that is what this woman is doing here. And Jesus says, it's beautiful because it comes from such a pure place of love and devotion in her. But okay, what is, what is one of the lessons for us? I've called this an extravagant gift. Extravagant, of course, has the word extra in it. And uh, if you know about such things, to be described as extra is not necessarily a compliment these days. It means that you are a little too intense. You're too over the top. You're making a big deal out of nothing. But according to Jesus, when it comes to our worship and our obedience, to be extra is appropriate. I have this suspicion. I've been thinking a lot about this this week. I'm thinking particularly of those of us who were raised in religious fundamentalism or moralism that grew up in the church and had bad experiences or whatever. I, I think we're, we might be, if we're not careful, guilty of overcorrecting. And I be, by that I mean that when we were first exposed to the gospel, grace was such good news. It was such a welcome truth, right? That, oh, you mean I don't have to, like, try so hard to do everything right all the time that we became so intent on leaving that religious landscape that we that was so extra that we grew up in that was oppressive and and just exhausting we wanted to leave it and it was extra about things that didn't matter and things that we knew weren't important anything you know all of that that we began to think that anything extra anything extra in the in the spiritual life began to carry a negative connotation and the lesson I think of this story is surely that we should not fear doing too much for God. The greater danger is doing too little. Religious fanaticism might be a problem, especially if it produces people like the scribes and these scoffers who are arrogant and condescending and finger-wagging. However, I'm suggesting something different. I'm suggesting gospel fanaticism, which is humble and grateful and joyful and sacrificial and extravagant. I have a dear friend who, <laughs> and I laugh every time, who describes her husband, who is truly the most joyful person you will ever meet, uh, with the phrase toxic positivity. And it's perfect. Uh, it's perfect because it's, you know, I get it. But most of us, if we're, if we're honest, we suffer from too little, not too much joy and humility and gratitude and so forth. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount alluded to how the test of our obedience is the degree to which we were willing and I suppose able to do more. Do you know that? For example, he says everybody loves their friends and hates their enemies. Everybody, but Christians are people who have been enabled by the power of the Spirit and by the gospel to do more. We are people who, according to his teaching, we are to love our friends and love our enemies. And it's the more, it's the more that marks people who have been supernaturally changed by God's grace and power. So Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus asks, what more are you doing than others? Jesus demands that. What more are you doing than others? It's a legitimate question. Now, it's interesting, though, in Luke's gospel, in the same parallel passage, that word more <laughs> is translated, uh, excuse me, it's substituted for the word charis or grace. And so what Luke is doing is he's saying that the, the, the source of that more in our life is not this legalistic demand of some kind, actually the source of the more that should be characterized, that should characterize our life is grace. Grace, the grace of God to us in Jesus doesn't remove the extra from our obedience and our worship. It puts it in bold all caps. Grace is not a spectator sport. Grace demands an even greater response than law. Grace enables a greater response than, than merely the law of God does. And so this scene 
is a perfect example of loving God with everything. It is, it is a great illustration of what we've been seeing for weeks now, all the way back in chapter 12, where Jesus gave us the greatest commandment. And the greatest commandment, which C.H. Lewis says, is paradoxical because he had this great insight. He says, on the one hand, um, it must mean something like behave as if you love God with everything because no one can simply love God like that because he's told to. But at the same time, obedience to the command is not really obedience because if you really loved God with everything, you wouldn't have to be told to do so. And so like the woman here, you wouldn't be able to stop yourself if you truly love God the way that you should. So Lewis said the command is really, really what the command to love God with everything, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Thought it was so insightful. Lewis said, Lewis said what the command really is, is you must be born again. And grace is uniquely effective because it does not merely change our behavior, but it contains the power to transform what we enjoy. It can transform our tastes it can cause us uniquely to see and relish the sweetness of God's character and his works. And this is what happens when you become a Christian. You get a new heart, and in getting a new heart, God becomes so lovely to you, so lovely that to do like the woman does here feels like the most natural thing in the world. There's no hesitancy in you. It's all been removed by the supernatural change you've experienced. And so one of the things, in staring at this text this morning, that we all have to ask is this, where does this become real in my life? I mean, I doubt, if so, let me know. I would just be curious. It would be fascinating. I doubt any of us have a $100,000 bottle of perfume at home. But what do you have that is that kind of costly that you could offer to God? extravagant, extravagant love is the mark of a supernaturally changed heart. But second, don't forget it is always a response to extravagant grace. She offers an extravagant gift, but it's an extravagant gift for extravagant grace. Jesus commends this act of devotion. In fact, he immortalizes it. Do you see what he says? Verse 9, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world... What she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, the scene, as I've said, occurs in all four Gospels. And so you can piece together some interesting things as you look at all of them in, in total. Uh, a, a few questions. First, do we know who this woman was? Well, John identifies her as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. That's in John 12, 3. And we know a lot about Mary from the Gospels. It makes sense that this would be her. It fits the characterization we see of her in other places. She was uniquely devoted to Jesus. Everywhere you see the two sisters side by side, Martha is always doing the same thing and Mary is always doing the same thing. Martha is serving and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. She soaked up Jesus' teaching and as a result, she had really great gospel instincts and they're on display here and what she's done. So another question we could ask is why would she do this? And I think what comes out from the text is that she did it because she understood the unique worth of Jesus and she understood the moment in a way that the disciples did not. All the way to Jerusalem, Jesus had been talking about his impending death. And no matter how much he shared and tried to prepare them for it, they just didn't get it. But Mary got it. 
and she knew that there would never be a better reason to break open the flask of oil. Think about this. This happens just not long after. In fact, in John's gospel, in John 11, her brother dies, and in John 12, you have this scene. Her brother, Lazarus, had died, and yet she didn't use the oil on him. Think about that. She knew that there was something unique uniquely worthy of Jesus and uniquely true of this particular situation they were in. And one last question. So what was the specific spiritual insight that led her to do this? And fortunately for us, the text does not leave us wondering. It reveals not only what she did, but also why she did it. Because Jesus wants us to live with the same sincerity, sincerity and beauty. And to do so, we have to be changed by the same gospel truth that changed Mary. And here's what it was. Mary understood that Jesus was not merely a rabbi with a new way to follow Yahweh. He was not merely a moral philosopher teaching a new moral philosophy. He was not a political Messiah who had come to take the nation of Israel back to the glory days. She knew that Jesus was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. That's what she knew. I mean, notice how verses 1 and 2 set up the scene. It says that it was two days before the Passover. If you skip down to verse 12, if you have a Bible open in front of you, it says, it picks back up there in verse, in verse 12 and 13. It says, on the first day of the feast when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. So remember what I told you a few weeks ago, if you were here, about Mark's, one of Mark's techniques is what we call the sandwich technique. This is another sandwich. Mark begins in verse 1 of chapter 14 with the Passover. And then there's the anointing, which is like this parenthesis. And then he picks back up with the Passover. And so verse 1 and verse 12 are the, you know, the outer parts, and they determine the meaning of everything in between. And so those two verses mean that what Mary understands here is that Jesus is the Passover lamb. This is how Jesus interprets what Mary has done. Look at verse 8. He says she, the reason she did this is she understands, unlike you dummies who I've been trying to tell this for you know weeks, she understands that I'm about to die. And she's anointing my body for my burial. Now, Passover was one of three feasts that Israel celebrated every year, and it, was, it commemorated God's redeeming the nation from Egypt, where they were slaves for 400-plus years, sometime during the reign of Ramses II, so something like 1279 to 1213 B.C. For over a 1,000 years, except when they were exiled from the land and so forth, and even then in some cases, Israel had been celebrating Passover as a remembrance of what God had done for them as a people. And here's the story. God sent a series of plagues on Egypt to humble Pharaoh's heart so that he would let them go and release them from their servitude. And the first nine didn't work. So the tenth was quite a doozy. It was the death of every firstborn son in all of Egypt, including the Israelites. But God also told the nation how they could escape the plague that was coming. Every house had to slaughter a lamb and take the blood and paint the doorframe of the houses with blood. And it says in Exodus that God would see the blood and he would pass over the house that was covered by the blood of the sacrifice, thus Passover. And so every year, Israelite families would travel to Israel from all over the country. They would go to the temple in Jerusalem and they would present a lamb as a sacrifice and the priest would kill the lamb in, you know, in memory of this Passover event, and they would take the lamb home, and they would have a meal as they did on that night in Egypt before the day before they left to retell the story of Exodus as a family and so forth. That's the setting. And Mary's instinct is that Jesus 
is actually the true Passover lamb. Mary understands that all of the lambs that had ever been slain in Israel to ward off the wrath of God against sin were being fulfilled in this one person standing in front of her. Now, I'm going to generalize here because we're going to go into this in more detail next week when we talk about the meal. But Mary knew this. Here's the insight. Mary knew that she was a sinner in the sight of God and that she deserved death and hell because of her sins. And she also knew that Jesus had come to Jerusalem to die upon a cross in her place, just like the lamb was killed in the place of the firstborn son on the night of Passover. Mary knew that the only way for her to not die as the just punishment for her sins was if Jesus died in her place, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that is the Christian gospel. And it is, in the words of, of um, one writer that I read this week, uh, it is a humbling and happifying truth. Now, I'm not making that word up. Do you know that's a real word? Happifying. That's my favorite new word. It's in the dictionary. It's a British thing. Happifying. It's a humbling and happifying truth. Humbling because it declares the depths of our sin and the reality of judgment. We are guilty of rebellion and treason against our maker. And his character demands justice. If you're familiar at all with the Narnia stories that C.S. Lewis wrote, there is the deep magic in the Narnia universe. And the deep magic that is engraved on the scepter of the emperor beyond the sea is just this, that if, a tra- if there is a traitor, the traitor must die. And if the traitor does not die, all of Narnia itself would unravel. In other words, unless sin is punished, the moral arc of the universe cannot bend towards justice. There cannot be ultimate moral righteousness. We are sinners. We have no claim on God's mercy. We deserve death and hell, and that's humbling. It's humbling, but the gospel is also a happifying truth because there's the deep magic, but then there's the deeper magic. And the deeper magic is that if a willing victim was killed in the traitor's place, then all could be forgiven, and even death itself will begin to work backwards. And so Aslan is killed by the white witch in Edmund's place, but he does not stay dead. He is alive. And here's the truth that belongs to all those who believe. Our sins, our sins are real. They are also forgiven by sheer grace. In Jesus' crucifixion and death, our salvation comes from God's love, not from us. That is the gospel. Extravagant grace. And it's a happifying truth. At least it should be. And if that same kind of humility and that same kind of happiness that you see here in this woman, in Mary, if the same kind of humility and happiness that expresses itself in this kind of extravagant devotion in this woman... If it is not present in the lives of those who say they believe the same truth, then something is wrong. We're dull. Dull spiritually. And if that's true, then what do you do? Well, the first step is to dig down into the problem. I mean, the way the text leads you is to consider whether you've become too much like the scribes who believed that God was gracious to them, but because of their good works. Their whole problem, the reason they were so crotchety, And murderous is that they had lost all true knowledge of themselves as sinners in need of mercy. And the same thing can happen to us. And when it does, all that is left is mock repentance and mock joy and spiritual flippancy. The gospel truth, however, is that God does not deal with us according to our potential or our deserts. He saves just as he creates out of nothing. God saves 
just as he creates out of nothing. And repentance has to start there by identifying the ways that you might, if you've believed, there are still ways that you might be slipping into self-reliance and self-help and away from grace. There's the sin and then there's the sin underneath the sin and repentance has to touch on both. And the reason there's so little power and so little change in so, so few of our lives is because we only deal with repentance with the outward things and not actually the things that really matter on the inside, the deeper down things. To become a Christian, you have to identify the ways that you're trusting in yourself and put your trust in Christ instead. That's saving faith, but to see your faith grow, you have to keep doing it over and over again, and that's the roadmap to Mary's love and devotion. A deepening awareness of yourself as a sinner, a deepening confidence and joy in God's grace to you in Jesus. Does that make sense? A deepening awareness of yourself as a sinner, a deepening, a deepening confidence and joy in God's grace to you in Jesus now. Here's where you famously go from preaching to meddling. Because there's a very, very unavoidable, clear application. In Mark 14, it just says, if you see there, some were indignant. We're not told who it actually is. In Matthew, as he tells this story, it says that it was the disciples who were indignant, and that stings a little bit more. John, though, John singles out Judas. And here's what it says in John. Let's read it. He says, Judas Iscariot said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then comes the explanatory note by the narrator, and it's brutal. Here's what John says. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help to himself what was put in it. And here in Mark in verse 10, there's a connection to Judas also. Mark goes immediately from this scene as it ends in verse 9 to that anticlimax that I showed you in verse 10. Though it is less explicit... We learn that it was Mary's extravagance that caused Judas' betrayal. Think about that. It was Mary's extravagance that caused Judas' betrayal. Well, what's the lesson? What do we learn from that? Judas' sin was greed. Which means that the greatest enemy of extravagant, even wasteful devotion to Jesus is greed. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately, too, about why there's so little of Mary's love in me and in you and in the modern Christianity that we're a part of. And I really believe, I really believe that there is so little of this because there is so much affluence. Because with affluence comes anxiety and with affluence comes busyness. It takes up all your time and energy. It makes you self-sufficient and spiritually dull so that you cannot feel your need for Jesus, which is why Jesus very clearly states in Matthew's gospel, you cannot serve both God and money. And we have to reckon with that. If we desire. If we desire the same kind of love and devotion we see here. Now, let me just finish with this. There's a phrase in Paul's writing that I'd like for you to consider as we, as we close here at the end. To the Philippians, he wrote this. He said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this is something that obviously mattered to Paul because he said similar things 
in a number of his letters in Colossians, as we read, he said, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in Thessalonians. Walk in a manner worthy of God. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, what do you think that means? What is a life, what is a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? And when we read that, and I'm afraid we think, better get your act together and not mess up. But I don't think that's it at all. Instead, I think this is it. I mean, we need more of this, right? We need more of what we see in this woman here. This is it. What is a life, a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? Give your all to Jesus. Give your everything to him. Give up all. Spend it all. Renounce it all because he is worthy. Give it all away from a heart of gratitude and devotion. That is a worthy life because he is worthy of nothing less. Extravagant love for extravagant grace. That is a manner of life. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. But not only that, that is the life that is truly life. Isaac Watts has this great hymn. And uh, in the last line in the hymn has these words, and it would just be where I leave you this morning. He says, when we taste thy love, our joys divinely grow. Unspeakable like those above. And then heaven begins below. Heaven begins below. This is the heavenly life. We, we, we read this text and we see this woman and we say, oh my goodness, I hope that never happens to me. <laughs> I hope nothing ever gets a hold of me that would cause me to act that way. No, 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 no. No, it's when you see, when you see and not only see, but to taste the divine love so that your joy grows to the degree that you'd be willing to do this. That's when heaven, that's when heaven begins. Eternal life is not something we will enjoy in the sweet by and by, eternal life is offered to us in the here and now, and Jesus is the doorway. Repent and believe in him, and you can have eternal life. Let's pray together this morning, would you, Father? And so as we prepare ourselves to come to this meal, to celebrate you and the great gift of your love to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, would you cause our rebellious, hard, stubborn hearts to break open that your spirit might break down the door of our hearts and come in and change us and give us hearts that are soft, hearts of flesh in the place of hearts of stone, that we might taste and see your goodness and your love, and that the result might be that we would find in ourselves the impulse that we see here in Mary, this extravagant love and gratitude and devotion to you because it is the thing that you are worthy of. We acknowledge that, and we also acknowledge how seldom it is that we offer anything resembling this to you. So forgive us and help us and change us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. He is worthy of our everything this week. But here's the thing. Before we can even think to go and live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus, it's that question. I love that it poses a question in that song. Does the Father truly love us? See, that's the question. That's the question that have to, has to have an answer in your heart. And if it has an answer, the answer, of course, that Christianity would say is yes, because Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who's taken away the sins of the world and we can live knowing the Father's love. Now, if you know that, then this benediction belongs to you. This is the promise yet again, that you go, but you go with the Father's heart and with the Father's smile because of all that Jesus has done for you. So receive this benediction then 
as he sends us into the world to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace. Thank you.